Well, greetings from the Isle of Patmos, those of you who uh, tuned in last week before a tree fell on our yard. By the way, I don't know how much of this you were able to catch because I know I was in and out. I was using my um, laptop like I'm doing tonight. Everything was fine till a tree fell on our power line, and that was kind of sending crazy surges through the house. We lost a modem, I think, at that point. But anyway, so then I switched to my phone, which was working perfectly fine, and then all of a sudden it died. And I had nothing, you know, there, I, I had no alternative. So that was exciting and fun. But uh, if you remember, I, and I won't go back through the whole story because it's not that entertaining, but uh, I mentioned to you last time that uh, because of teaching this study, I've been put under discipline at my church. I, uh, I only bring that up again because I mentioned it to uh, Michael Garstang and his group at the Chapel of the Open Book. And when I tuned into their Bible study, he asked me how how I was doing on the Isle of Patmos. So I think from now on, my greetings, instead of being from North Carolina, will be from the Isle of Patmos. Okay. So, as you can tell, I'm not Phil Bagby. Hopefully we'll have him next week. Uh, I don't play him on TV, but he's going to be speaking anyway. Uh, Let's see. Voice is a little better this week, so hopefully you won't have too much of uh, one of too many issues with my voice and the lovely technology. But uh, we are so I'm going to kind of start where I was last week. Forgive me if I'm repeating, but we are continuing with the study of Charles Welch's book titled "John and the Mystery," also called the, "The Relative Callings of John's Gospel and the Epistle to the Ephesians." So tonight is part two of part two, or Part two, the second time. This time it's personal. I don't know how you want to define that. but So let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not take for granted this amazing salvation that you've given us, this free gift to the Lord Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on our behalf. And We thank you so much for your word. We pray that your truth would shine through in all things. In, in all of our studies, we would re- receive and understand and embrace your truth. And we pray that, uh, as always, we would walk worthy of the calling with, we, with which we've been called. Amen. Okay. So we're going to do a quick review of what we went over the previous, the last time I actually spoke a full message. So Charles Welch was accused by one of his contemporaries of what the critic referred to as, quote, breaking up, end quote, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. The critic believed that all Christians are members of Christ's body, and this is held by a lot of churches today, obviously. And he disagreed with Welch's position that while every Christian has resurrection life, not every Christian is part of the body. And the two verses mentioned in the accusation against Charles Welch were Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. And Tony, I guess the email, I hope you have the email from last week where I sent you all the verses. Uh, We'll start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, on account of his great love with which he loved us, made us, being dead to transgressions, alive together with Christ, you have been saved by grace, and raised us together and seated us together in the upper heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the other verse that was mentioned in the accusation against Welsh was John chapter 20, starting at verse 30. To be sure... Jesus performed many other signs, too, in the presence of his disciples, which have not been written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. So the distinction here is that 
John 20 applies to every person who has trusted in Christ for his or her salvation. All who believe in Christ have been given resurrection life. But Ephesians 2 is only referring to those in the body, which, again, according to Welch, is not every Christian. It's, it's an elect group of people. Um, we learned that the phrases made alive together, raised us together, and seated us together are only found in the prison epistles and nowhere else in the scriptures, including John's gospel, which indicates that maybe these promises aren't for everyone. We, uh, we looked in Matthew's gospel at the parable of the vineyard and the parable of the marriage of the king's son. Israel had rejected both of God's offers. The first was during the Lord's earthly ministry. The second during the apostles' ministry covered in the Acts. And so Gentiles were grafted in, as of Acts 10, for the sole reason of making Israel jealous. And as I, I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again because it doesn't hurt. Uh, as a reminder to anyone who's new to this room, anyone who's visiting, grafted in Gentiles and Jews do not make up the body of Christ. Jews and Gentiles are now one new man, as we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, with no distinctions, no separate commandments, no separate rules. And this has been pointed out many times, but uh, 99% of the local churches today, and as I mentioned last week, I say 99 just to give myself an out in case we discover there's one or two that don't follow along with this, but 99% of local churches today do not treat their Jewish and Gentile members differently. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. And that's, you know, it's an interesting thing. I'm not going to go too far down this road, but just when we look at right division and we think, you know, what we're saying is that the church didn't start until Jews and Gentiles were one new man, which is what everybody, everybody agrees that the Jews and Gentiles are one new man today. They don't agree is when it happened. And, of course, our reasoning makes a lot more sense because throughout the Acts period, we see Jews and Gentiles being given separate instructions and being given the Jews first and all that. So it is. you would think that our position would be an easy one to convince people because we're just going, everything that you know and how your church functions today, yeah, that's the church, but it didn't happen when you think it did. But, you know, tradition's a hard thing to break from people. Anyway, so during the Acts period, as I said, Israel was the priority. Looking back at Matthew 22, verses 9 through 10, it reads, So go to the arterial roads and invite whoever you find to the wedding. So those servants went out to the roads and gathered everyone they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with diners. In Matthew 10, verse 5, the apostles were told not to go to the Gentiles. Now, that order is reversed after Israel's twice rejection, but then Gentiles receive God's invitation. We also went over a kind of a quick overview of the purpose of the four Gospels. We mentioned that Matthew shows that Christ is king of Israel, who will rule when he sets up his kingdom. We see the genealogy through David back to Abraham to confirm his right to the throne. Uh, the Gospel of Mark shows Christ as servant. There's no genealogy needed for a servant. Luke shows Christ as man, and we see this second genealogy go back to Adam. So Matthew is Christ as king, Mark is Christ as servant, Luke is Christ as man. Which brings us to John's gospel. John's gospel shows Christ as God, 
the Creator, Redeemer, and Lord, the Word made flesh. The other three Gospels are addressed to God's people Israel, while the Gospel of John, I believe, is not addressed to Jews specifically, but it's addressed to the world, both Gentile and Jew. There's internal evidence uh, within the Gospel to show that John expected his readers to be unfamiliar with the customs of Israel. I think we, I think I got this far last week, but again, indulge me. So if we look at John chapter 1, starting at verse 38. Jesus then turned around and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated is teacher, where are you staying? Verse 41. He found his own brother Simon first and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated is the Christ. Verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. Well, obviously, the Jews would not need these words to be translated for them. Yet John translates the words Rabbi, Messiah, and Cephas for his audience. So I think it's not a silly conclusion to assume that he's expecting his readers wouldn't understand this, so his readers would not just be Jews. Uh, if we look at John chapter 5, verse 1, it reads, After these things, it was the Jews' festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We have a similar passage in uh, John chapter 10, verse 22, which reads, Now it was the festival of the dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now, these verses include unnecessary commentary if John is expecting his audience to be Jews alone, like the other Gospels. Jews would know when these festivals are taking place. They wouldn't need the additional, uh, the additional commentary, the additional points. Uh, we just pointed out in passing, didn't really get into it, point out that John's Gospel does not include the Lord's Supper, which is kind of interesting. Um, another distinction in John's Gospel is that he starts with Christ rejected by Israel. If we look at John 1.11, it reads, He came to his own property, but his own people did not receive him. Uh, Mr. Welch also mentioned that marriage is a running theme for John. And he reminds us that the Lord and his disciples were guests at the wedding for the marriage at Cana. And it was at this wedding that, uh, if you remember, the Lord turned the water into wine, famously, of course, but that's the first of the eight signs in John's Gospel. And we talked about the eight signs in the first lesson we did on this. Uh, Welch also pointed out that the wedding was on the seventh day, and he said that's a foreshadowing of the millennium with its marriage of the Lamb. Now, I had to look into that to confirm, because when you start John chapter 2, verse 1, it reads that on the third day a wedding took place in Cana. So that, you know, is a little confusing, but if you go back to the first chapter of John, you'll see that four days preceded chapter 2, verse 1. So we have four days in chapter 1, and then, which by the way is the first word of chapter 2, the word then, then we have three days following for a total of seven. Um, John is the only New Testament writer to refer to John the Baptist as the friend of the bridegroom in John chapter 3, verse 29. John is the only New Testament writer to speak of the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and those who, as guests, were invited to this marriage. 
Let's look at Revelation 19, starting in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, because the marriage feast of the Lamb has come, and the wife has made herself ready. And she was granted to put on shining and pure fine linen, for fine linen stands for the righteous observances of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who have been invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So the question we're investigating is, Who are these guests? The bridegroom is our Lord. The bride is Israel. We were chosen before the overthrow of the world. As we read in Ephesians 2.6, He raised us together and seated us together in the upper heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it seems unlikely that we would be the guests. So who does that leave unaccounted for? Not unbelievers, certainly. Well, Mr. Welch believed that these guests are those believers who did not, quote, try the things that differ from Philippians 1.10. They didn't rightly divide the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. In other words, the believers who did not accept the teaching of the mystery, which accounts for the majority of Christians for the last almost 2,000 years and it's certainly the majority of Christians today. I may need to apply that 99% number again here. Um, quick reminder on the purpose of John's gospel. We already read this, but it certainly bears repeating. John chapter 20, starting in verse 30. To be sure, Jesus performed many other signs too in the presence of his disciples, which have not been written in this book. But these, and he's referring to the eight signs we mentioned in the previous lesson, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life through his name. As we said, every believer who is trusted in Christ as their only Savior is guaranteed resurrection life. There's nothing that can take that away. This is a free gift that no one can lose. And boy, we praise the Lord for that. Because if there was a way to lose it, I'm sure I could do it. Let's take a look at the um, at the one flock that the Lord spoke of in John chapter 10, starting in verse 14. It reads, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and I'm no I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, I also know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, too, which are not of this fold, and I must leave those, too, and they will hear my voice, and there will be this. One flock, one shepherd. Who are these other sheep? We know in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 6, it reads, Jesus sent these twelve out, gave them orders, and said, Do not go off into the way of the Gentiles, and do not go into any city of the Samaritans, but rather, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Matthew 15, verse 24, But he answered and said, I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Israel are referred to as sheep, and Christ is the good shepherd. They are, quote, this fold, as we just read in John 10. So who are the other sheep which are not of this fold? They can't be Israel. So if not Israel, these sheep must be Gentiles, which makes sense to find this written in John's gospel, since it is, we're assuming it is addressed to both Jew and Gentile. So, again, these things are they're, they're coming together. We're, we're getting uh, 
making a connection here. It's at this point that uh, Charles Welch brings up the idea that the one, the argument, I should say, uh, that people have said that, well, the one flock is the same as the one new man. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard people say that, but, you know, the, the, the one flock cannot be the same as the one new man referred to in Ephesians. Now, we know that the one new man, the mystery, was hid in God and revealed to the Apostle Paul. It is not prophesied in the Old Testament, nor is it taught in the Gospels or the letters written during the Acts period. Therefore, the one flock mentioned by the Lord, whose earthly ministry was to Israel, as we've already seen, cannot be the same as the one new man. Now, again, those who don't agree with right division may claim that the one flock is the same, and uh, therefore they'll use this reference in John chapter 10, verse 16, as sort of their silver bullet. You know, the, the, this is all it takes to destroy the view of people who hold to the right division. You know, but it's, frankly, that's just nonsense. Let's look at the economy under which the one flock existed during the Acts period. They were waiting on Christ's return to establish the promised kingdom to Israel. Jews had to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave believers supernatural powers of languages, healing, raising the dead, etc. Israel was still first. We've already mentioned that. Gentiles were only grafted into the blessings and promises of Abraham to make Israel jealous. Paul, the apostles of the Gentiles, only went to Gentiles after Israel rejected the message. Jews were still keeping the law, albeit without the sacrifice for sin. Believing Gentiles were treated as, quote, foreigners who dwell in their midst, uh, end quote, and required to comply with the four rules uh, taken from Leviticus 17. Paul confirmed that he never told anyone, certainly he hadn't told any Jewish person, that the law had now been made optional. And in fact, he confirmed that he himself continued to keep the law. Paul and the Twelve only teach what is written in the Law and the Prophets. Again, we remember the mystery is hidden God, so it's not going to be in the Law and the Prophets. Um, the hope of Israel was still in view. Uh, the book of Romans, which we understand is, is the last book of that period, you know, it, it still says that God had not put Israel aside yet at this time. So all these characteristics that I just mentioned would have applied to the one flock, but not a single one of them is true of the one body, the church of the mystery. So with that in mind, it's easy to see that the one flock and the one body are completely different entities. And you know the silver bullet. The silver bullet turns out to be nothing but a harmless blank. Now, since we mentioned the hope of Israel, let's look at Ephesians three, verses fourteen through fifteen. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom every family in the heavens and on earth is named. Now, verse fifteen seems to indicate there are families in the heavens and on earth. This reminds us of the reason for Welch's booklet to show that not all believers who have life through his name have the same reward or the same hope. He also Welch also declares that the testimony of the scriptures identifies three adoptions and three distinct callings. So we'll look at those now. If we turn to Romans chapter 9, we'll look at the hope of Israel. For I could vow that I myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, 
who are the, who are Israelites, who have the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the instituting of the law and the service and the promises of whom the fathers are and from whom Christ is as regards the flesh, who is above all God blessed throughout the ages. Amen. Okay, if we turn to Galatians, we'll look at the Abraham's spiritual seed, the church of the firstborn. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 27. For any of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are of Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'll just stop here for a second and say this is a verse that I hear a lot. I don't know if you guys do, but this is the one that another one they try to use to dismantle our view, saying, "Look, see the, you know, we're all blessed in Abraham's seed, you know, and try to explain them. Yeah, but the one new man has nothing to do with us being grafted into Jew, to, to Israel. So they still don't get it. Anyway, uh, Galatians four verses four. I'm sorry, Galatians chapter four verses five through seven. To redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption. And in that you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God's through Christ. Uh, skipping down to verse 26. But Jerusalem above, uh, uh, sorry, tongue twister. But Jerusalem of above is free, and she is the mother of us all. From that, we'll jump to Hebrews 11. By faith, he, that's Abraham, lived as an immigrant in the land of the promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was waiting for the city which has foundations, whose architect and craftsman is God. Uh, Skip down to verse 16. But as it is, they aspire to a better homeland, that is to say, an upper heavenly one, For that reason, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, and the city of the living God, the upper heavenly Jerusalem, and myriads of angels, to the assembly and the church of the firstborn, who have been recorded in the heavens, and to God the judge of everyone, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And lastly, we'll look at uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the children of Israel have an earthly calling to inherit the land, as promised. But the heavenly calling of the heavenly city, which, again, is not in the heavens, the city is in the heavens, comes down to earth. So it's still an earthly, you can say it's a heavenly hope with an earthly destination for lack of a better way to describe it. But the New Jerusalem is an even better reward than just a land for those who seek it by faith. Now when we compare that with our hope, that we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, the hope of the church of the dispensation of the mystery, according to how he chose us in him before the overthrow of the world, for us to be holy and without blemish in his presence in love, having appointed us beforehand for adoption through Jesus Christ to him, according to the good pleasure of his will. And we skip over to Ephesians 2, verse 6, which we've already looked at, but again, always a good reminder. And raised us together and seated us together in the upper heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Our hope is being seated with Christ in heavenly places far above all the heavens. It's not the land. It's not the new Jerusalem. It's being seated with Christ in heavenly places far above all the heavens. Now, those three are completely different hopes. And we see they're distinct. As we said, the distinct adoption is distinct hopes. And according to Mr. Welch, I'm going to put, he had a quote here that I think is valuable. He said, or wrote, quote, We have an adoption without which membership of the one body is impossible. I want to talk a little bit about the differences between children and sons. And I want to attempt to use a Greek word again, so watch me butcher the language. So the Greek word for, for adoption is huiothesia, which, as we all know, is also Dr. Mike's pal talk name of choice. But we all pass from death to life by believing the message of John's gospel, and we become a member of the family of faith. But there is a difference between being a child in the family and being the, quote, firstborn son and heir. And not to step on toes when I say this, but the authorized version does not observe the distinctions between huios, the Greek word for son, and technon, the word for child. John never used the word huios when referring to a believer in Christ. John does not speak of believers as sons with an inheritance, but instead he refers to them as children. Uh, Charles Welch commented as well on this, quote, The glory of membership of the church, which is the one body, is in this predestinated adoption, this place of sons settled before the foundation of the world, which cannot be read into John's gospel. So John addresses God's children. Paul addresses God's sons who are heirs. Now, the question that must be asked at this point is, if two, you know, can two dispensations run together? Are there two distinct dispensations in operation today? Where Mr. Welch, Mr. Welch says yes. And if indeed there are two companies of believers distinguished by whether or not they accept Paul's teaching in the prison epistles, then he's absolutely right, he thinks. If we think of a dispensation as a stewardship, instead of a period of time that can be marked out on a calendar, this will be easier for us to grasp. The Greek word oikonomos is translated both as stewardship and dispensation. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if unwillingly, then I have still been entrusted with a stewardship. We're going to jump over to Ephesians 1, and verse 10. With a view to the dispensation of the fullness of times, to head up all things in Christ, those above the heavens and those on the earth. Uh, Ephesians 3.9 And to enlighten everyone as to what the dispensation of the mystery is, which was hidden from the ages in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. And lastly, uh, Colossians 1.25 Of which I have become a minister according to the dispensation of God, which was given to me for you, to fill the word of God. I think we can see from these verses that stewardship and dispensation are responsibilities and not so much bound by time. Time is not completely absent, obviously, regarding dispensations, 
But there's no reason more than one dispensation cannot be active at the same time. Um, as further evidence, let's remember what we've that we've already seen two dispens I'm sorry, two stewardships or dispensations running at the same time during the Acts period. So if we look at Galatians chapter two, starting at verse seven. But on the contrary, when they saw that I, that's Paul, had been entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcision as Peter with that of the circumcision. For he who had been active in Peter for the apostleship of the circumcision had also been active in me for the Gentiles. And when they knew the grace which had been given to me of these people, James and Cephas and John, who were considered to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcision. So Peter, James, and John recognized that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles differed from their ministry to Israel. Um, an example, another example of this that I hadn't considered until uh, I saw Welsh mentioned it in his booklet was if you look at the majority of the Old Testament dealing with the law, you know, starting at, at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. Let's look at Exodus 19 verses 3 through 6. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you will say to the house of Jacob and will tell the sons of Israel. You have seen what I did to Egypt when I lifted you up on the wings of eagles and brought you to me. So now, if you will rigorously obey me and keep my covenant, you will be a special acquisition of mine above all the nations, for the whole earth is mine. And you will be a kingdom of priests to me and a holy nation. These are the things which you will speak to the sons of Israel. So as we know, and I think most people know, the law was given exclusively to the house of Jacob, the sons of Israel. Gentiles have never been under the law. So that's two distinctions, distinct messages, if you will, differing messages right there. Um, starting in verse 7, we have, And after much disputing had taken place, Peter stood up and said to them, Men and brothers, you understand that from early days God made a choice among us that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel through my mouth and believe. And God, who knows our hearts, witnessed to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, as he also did to us. And he did not discriminate between us and them in any respect, and he purified their hearts by faith. So now, why are you putting God to the test by putting a yoke on the disciples' neck, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But it is by great, the grace of the Lord Jesus that we believe and that we have been saved in the same way that they do. So obviously this passage in Acts is from the New Testament, but it shows that Gentiles and Jews were obviously saved the same way. They were, they were given resurrection life the same way, as we've said many times. It's always been by grace through faith, period. It's starting with Adam all the way to the end of time. It will always be only by grace through faith. But... God did not put Gentiles under the law. So there were two stewardships, I think, going on at the same time in the Old Testament. And if we remember, if we look at Jonah, Jonah, when Jonah was sent to the Ninevites, he never mentioned they had to keep the Mosaic law. The Ninevites weren't Jews, right? So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And at no point in the book of Jonah do we see him mentioning that, okay, you need to repent and turn back to God by keeping these commandments. You need to keep the entire Mosaic law, etc. It had nothing to do with that, because they were Gentiles. 
He's not going to put that. It would have been wrong for Jonah to try and put the Ninevites under the Mosaic law. So we see two essentially dispensations running concurrently at that point, if we understand dispensations to be stewardships. Um, as if the Jews were under law, Gentiles were under a, as Wells called it, a, a covenant of conscience. I kind of like that term. Uh, if we look at Romans chapter 1, verse 19, and then we can close with this. Because what can be known about God is evident among them, for God has manifested it to them. For the invisible attributes of him from the creation of the world are understood and caught sight of in the things made, his perpetual power and deity, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but became vain in their reasonings and in their undeserving, and their undeserving heart was darkened. So again, these two, the concept of two dispensations should not seem strange to us, and we can see that non, non-Jews, so Gentiles, ha- are without excuse because of the attributes, of, because what we even see even in creation. So, we are going to leave our study here at this time, and pick up more next time, and uh, we'll just close in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for all of your blessings. Help us to walk closer with you each day we've been given. Help us to teach others the truth of your word, and help us to never bring shame to you. Amen.